So that's that's really quite common in pediatric cancer. It's it's beautiful in the sense that it shows how communities become galvanized by pediatric cancer. You see this again and again, and, and it's, you know, from a humanistic standpoint, is one of the most gratifying parts of working in this field is to see those communities crystallize around families in need. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of the Lila Bean Foundation podcast, Purpose, Passion, Progress. I'm Derek Danik, an LBF Ambassador Council member and one of your hosts for this journey. I'll be joined by my former colleague and my connection to the cause, John Paul Persard, more affectionately known as JP by those who know him. JP, welcome. Introduce yourself to the folks. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. I'm John Paul, affectionately known as JP. Um, I'm the board president of the Lila Beam Foundation. I'm very proud to be that and excited for this series of, uh, of podcasts. And yeah, so JP and I go back a little bit, a few years, actually, um, we used to work together, still employed by the same employer, but just in different areas, but we have stayed connected. And so uh, about three years ago, I think it was, we ran into each other in the cafeteria one morning and JP, you asked me very bluntly, hey, what are you doing in the philanthropic space? And I was like, nothing, but I think I'd like to do something. Uh, and you connected me with Nicole and here we are three years later. That's right. I, you know, and you know, you conveniently forget that there were moments in our relationship where you were hunting or searching for a way to give back. You were hunting for a cause or something to provide your time, effort, energy, talent, which there's abundance of to, to, to make a difference. And so selfishly, you know, I didn't let you escape and I scooped you up and got you connected into the Light of Beam Foundation. And we're very thankful for it. You did a great job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think I think that's a, a good time here for us to introduce the Lila Bean Foundation for folks so they understand who we're talking about when we throw around LBF. So uh, for those tuning in who might not know, we're a 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on raising funds for research that will advance treatments to create better outcomes for children diagnosed with brain cancer. The end goal of the Lila Bean Foundation is to help fund a cure for pediatric cancer. On this podcast, we'll hear from pediatric oncology doctors, the founder of the foundation, the Childhood Brain Tumor Network, and parents who have experienced the heartbreak of hearing those words, your child has cancer. We're doing this show to help tell our story and advance our mission. We're kicking this podcast off in September by design, as it is Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. Now, JP, before we introduce our first guest, I want to share a few facts with the listeners that's going to help shape our conversation for today. Pediatric brain cancer is severely underfunded. In the last 30 years, there have only been a few drugs developed to exclusively treat pediatric cancer. That bears repeating. In the last 30 years, only a few drugs have been developed to exclusively treat cancer in children. And that's just pediatric cancer, not specific to pediatric brain cancer. Brain tumors are the deadliest form of cancer in children, fatal to nearly 50%. Approximately 11 children every day, or around 4,000 children each year, are diagnosed with malignant brain tumors. So we're here today to unpack why this is where we are in 2022 and set a foundation for the rest of our conversations this season. We'll do that today with our guest, Dr. Brian Rood, Medical Director of the Brain Tumor Institute at Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC, and Executive Co-Chair of the Children's Brain Tumor Network. 
Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here for this conversation. Um, I think every time we, we get to speak, I feel like I learn so much and you can take these complex issues and, and make them understandable. So um, let's start, Brian, with your introduction and, and who you are and, and why you're here today. Uh, thank you, Derek. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, as you said, my name is Brian Rood and I'm the medical director of the Brain Tumor Institute of the Children's National Hospital. I've been a neuro-oncologist for almost 25 years um, and I'm committed to helping to improve the therapies available for children with brain tumors. In that capacity, I became involved with the Lila Bean Foundation um, at its founding um, and uh, have been really gratified to see the um, positive impacts that Lila Bean has made in this field. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, in our introduction, we shared a few kind of grim statistics. There's only been a couple new drugs to treat pediatric cancer in the last 30 years, and that's just really jarring to hear. Um, can you help us understand a little bit about why this is? What do you see as the biggest challenge of pediatric brain cancer research? I think a lot of that centers around the fact that pediatric brain tumors are quite rare. Um, and for that reason, there are some knock-on effects, such as the fact that the, uh, the market for pediatric cancer drugs is quite small. It's extremely expensive to develop new therapeutics for cancer. Uh, and consequently, the market forces sort of would argue against uh, attempting to create drugs that are specifically uh, tailored for pediatric cancer. Um, However, when there is overlap, of course, between adult cancers and pediatric cancers, that's where most of the drugs that we use in pediatric cancer therapy come from. Um, but it's really not adequate because the biology of pediatric cancer is in many cases quite different from adult cancers. Pediatric cancers generally arise from a kind of a misprogramming, if you will, where cells revert to a more developmental embryonic type phenotype Whereas in adult cancers, it's usually the accumulation of mutations from environmental factors and, and just time alone from our, our organism, which is quite mutational in its core. Um, consequently, the biology is quite different, but the uh, therapeutic targets are therefore often different um, and we'll need to um, have dedicated efforts along those lines, but market forces are kind of working against us. So um, in using adult drugs to treat pediatric cancer, how does that work? Is it just lower doses or is it altered in some other way? When using uh, adult cancer drugs to treat children, we, we do things a little bit differently. We have to conduct our own clinical trials in which we have to establish what the maximally tolerated dose is. Uh, we typically start at 80% of the adult dose adjusted for body size. So everything in pediatrics is dose like for body weight or body surface area, whereas adults is pretty much just one dose fits all. Um, so we have to do those trials to make sure that children tolerate the, the drugs the same way that the adults do, find the right dose. As a sidebar, you know, the uh, way that we determine the right dose is often what's the maximally tolerated dose because we lack the ability to determine what's the most effective dose. Um, and there are many examples where giving, you know, more is not better. Um, and, and so that goes to another whole area of development, such as uh, which pharmacodynamic markers. Uh, in other words, developing ways for us to determine what the best dose is. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, so generally speaking, we, we have to do trials to figure out what the, the most 
uh, appropriate doses for children, but it's always scaled down for their body size. Going back to rarity, so just we said in the beginning, pediatric brain cancer is rare. Um, when we were talking offline, you mentioned that there are a number of pediatric brain cancer subtypes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, maybe 15 years ago, 20, um, there was probably in the order of 30 some pediatric brain cancers. Um, what's happened with kind of the genomic revolution where we started realizing, oh, there are specific flavors within those diagnostic groups, um, molecular subgroups they're often termed, that has really kind of expanded the number of brain tumors because we realize that they don't all respond the same way to, to the therapies. Some require more intensive therapy, some require less intensive therapy. And then add to that the revolution that's occurred in regards to molecularly targeted therapies. So now when you are choosing therapies based upon the actual molecular makeup of these tumors, well, now those molecular subgroups become actually completely critical to choosing the proper therapy. Um, and so that really de facto expands the number of tumors that are um, that for which therapies are needed. The World Health Organization has recently added um, in the last two iterations a, uh, a understanding of molecular subgroups such that the number of pediatric brain cancers has really now swelled to well over 130 or so. Um, now, not all of them need completely unique therapies, but I think um, in the, the concept of uh, personalized medicine, that is the way that we are thinking about these tumors. And, trying to discern their individual biology and trying to find the right therapies for the right patients. Gotcha. And each subtype then, if you're talking about a therapy or a treatment, it's, it's a whole different study. It's, it's one line just looking at that subtype, another line looking at another subtype. So I think that can get very complicated very quickly. Absolutely. And in addition to that, of course, you need enough patients to adequately test a therapy. And when you start getting take a rare disease and now chop it up into 135 even more rare diseases, some of which more rare than others. And then you need to assemble a cohort to test new therapies. Um, this becomes a huge challenge, not only for an individual institution or clinical trials consortia, but for an entire nation. Um, and it becomes more and more important for us to have international collaborations and to make this a global effort. And that global effort, can you talk a little bit to us about your work with the Childhood Brain Tumor Network, CBTN? Uh, CBTN is a network of institutions currently around 28, although we're working hard to add to that number every day, uh, where we share clinical data from patients who have consented for that to occur. In addition, we biobank uh, specimens of their tumor tissue, their blood, their cerebral spinal fluid, um, basically anything that could be informative about that tumor. And that those specimens are then subjected to sort of big data generation, such as whole genome sequencing, RNA sequencing, quantitative proteomics, methylation profiling. And so all these data layers are then deposited, reposited as well, um, and appended to those clinical specimens. All of this information and material is made freely available to the scientific research public. Um, they simply need to file a proposal. Uh, we review the proposal for just to make sure that, that it has you know, basic scientific merit, but also that in the, can, the case that there's multiple labs working on very similar projects, we will connect them and, and ask them to collaborate with the CBTN resources. Um, so all of this is made freely available to the research community with the goal of accelerating 
the advancement of the research towards new therapies. Wonderful. I love that. And so it kind of brings a lot of baseline information together um, with the intent of hopefully help, like you said, accelerating, getting people a starting point uh, so they can pick up and go. I don't want to go too much into CBTN because we're going to have a guest later on, uh, on, but I was just curious, is this a newer group or, or how long has the CBTN been around? CBTN's been around, oh, I don't remember exactly. I want to say about eight years, eight to 10, but it's been really growing. And uh, I would say the last four to five years has, has really sort of seen it start to realize its promise. Dr. Reed, as you look at the, your barriers, the things that, you know, obviously funding is one thing that you're, you're always looking to do based on the economics, but what are some of the barriers that you face that would help, you know, progressively you know, speed up, treatment, cure, just the medicine side of things? Yeah, I mean, to answer that, I think it, the answer really is in the in the day-to-day, right, of conducting this type of research. Um, and the, it comes down to people, um, both financially, if you look at the budget of a lab, 80, 90, probably 90% of it is, is a salary, um, because really these cures, these ideas, is these new therapies are all the product of human minds more than you know much more than just hands right um and so finding the right people is absolutely critical and for those people to make the choice to make this their career goal to find these answers um, requires a fertile environment for them to thrive um success as a researcher takes many different forms both you know academic um rank academic rank being promoted to professor whatever um, as well as just survivability, you know, being able to fund your lab, being able to uh, employ people in your lab and, and uh, keep that going year to year to year requires a lot of funds. And so for a new researcher, PhD or MD or MD, PhD, trying to start a lab, you know, they have to ask the question, where is the place, the most fertile ground for me to really be pursuing this um, science? And so the funding environment is a critical part of that. So how do we help that? You know, we, we sort of appeal to their passions, right? Get them involved early as trainees. Um, we get them to understand the, the gravity of the cause um, and to make it personal. And that's what we're you know, hoping to do um, with mechanisms such as the Lilabine Fellowship Fund, um, where we're able to help provide salary support for new emerging investigators to help kind of get them in the fold of if you will, um, and get them intrigued and, um, and excited about the possibilities of, of finding new therapies for these kids. So I want to switch gears a little bit, Brian, and start talking about funding. We've kind of talked a little bit about research thus far. How do we pay for all of this, <laughs> I think is the uh, most blunt way to put it, but. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, you know, it's extremely expensive to do scientific research, uh, more so today than ever before. And most research funding in this country for cancer comes from the federal government. Uh, the federal government operates kind of on a rubric that the more common a cancer, the more funding that receives. And when I say common, I mean the number of individuals affected by that cancer. And as we've already mentioned, the rarity of pediatric cancer kind of works against us in that regard. Um, the largest adult cancer groups are you know swamp or, or you know far more prevalent than pediatric cancers, and so the bulk of the NIH um, funding goes to them 
same could be said for the American Cancer Society and, and other sort of large funding organizations. That's really important because that type of funding comes with something called indirect costs. Um, for a researcher in an academic setting to perform research, it requires not only the money to pay their own staff and to buy their own reagents um, and to pay for their own uh, comp computing and other things like that, but it requires that there be a facility. Um, someone's gotta you know, keep the lights running, keep the place clean, um, have the insurance, like all the stuff that it takes for an institution to run. Um, and the funding for that comes from these indirect costs. The percentage of the indirect cost is negotiated between the institution and the NIH, um, but it's some proportion, usually a fairly high proportion of whatever the researcher gets in direct cost that they get to spend on the research themselves. And so that kind of funding is really important for a research institute to be able to function. Um, in pediatrics, since that type of funding is very difficult to come by, um, it becomes a huge challenge for uh, researchers we often then turn towards our community to help us fund research. And that is you know, foundations, private foundations, such as the Larabine Foundation, where it's, they're usually started by parents. They're usually people who are um, motivated by, by their own children having been diagnosed with cancer or someone in their community. Uh, and they, they raise money, golf events, um, you know, doing balls, doing, and dance marathons, doing you know any, any number of very creative things to raise money, and then they usually administer these through grants. Um, so that's that's really quite common in pediatric cancer. It's it's beautiful in the sense that it shows how communities become galvanized by pediatric cancer. We see this again and again, and, and it's, you know, from a humanistic standpoint, is one of the most gratifying parts of working in this field is to see those communities crystallize around families in need. Um, but it's a little unfortunate that, you know, our federal government doesn't recognize um, as much the fact that there are many more pediatric cancers than adult cancers. And by saving a child, you're saving that child's entire lifetime. Um, whereas a lot of the research goes towards, you know, frankly, things that are occurring in elderly individuals. Um, and uh, so we feel like there's, there's room for both viewpoints in the funding realm and would advocate for more federal funding of pediatric cancer. I agree. And I think uh, in, in the short few years that I've been working with the Lila Bean Foundation, just the community has really stood out. Um, it, it just the way people can fundraise and when we do our 5K or something like that and, and the way the money will pour in uh, for a family, it's just, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible to see. It definitely affirms uh, one's belief in the, in the goodness of humans. For sure. What are some of the things that trends, if you will, from a foundation standpoint that you've seen that would help others fundraise or you know get connected into the cause? Um, that's something that we all obviously, you know, constantly trying to pull either patient families in or companies or individuals or, or such, but you've seen a lot of charities come and go and all that good stuff. I'm curious what insights you may have from that perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest changes I've seen in the work of foundations over the past, um, well, many years, but, but just more recently in the last five or six is the willingness of foundations to collaborate with one another uh, has really, I think, changed. 
going back, you know, a couple of decades, foundations were, I won't say competitive, right? But, but they definitely were um, kind of inwardly focused on their own donor group um, and their own granting mechanism and their own, you know, kind of show. And within a given region, you know, there was only so much room for, for foundations. Now what I'm seeing is that with greater organization on the research side, greater collaboration between institutions, between researchers, um, which by the way, is a feature of pediatric cancer research. Unlike adult, there's a whole lot more collaboration um, driven by sort of this desire to help children. And foundations have really seen that, I think, and, and started to do the same. So now, particularly in, in the you know, CB10, it makes for a really good example here, where we have lots of foundations collaborating with each other to fund large initiatives together, um, which more and more is what it's going to take. Um, so I think that's been a really gratifying um, trend to see. Yeah, I, just to respond to that, Sinche, you got me thinking, you know, we've been in this conversation for over a decade now. And um, initially, in our, my journey anyway, I was somewhat shocked in what you just described, whether it was medically facing, like the lack of collaboration between hospitals and or whatever doctors, and especially on the, the foundation side, like how do you link arms and kind of attack this thing all together? You know, you fast forward to 2022 and, you know, CBTN, great example of how great minds and resources are coming together to tackle this problem, which is a, a grave one. You know, I definitely, I've been, I was pretty cynical at first whether collaboration would occur. And now 10 years on, I'm kind of looking back saying, holy cow, that it's been 10 years, but the speed by which collaboration has happened across foundations and in the medical field on this topic, I think is, is pretty impressive in my opinion. You know, again, starting out, I was pretty cynical about it. Now I'm very energized about it, which is, which is super cool. So, uh, Brian, we talked about federal funding, and then we've talked about this this private funding from foundations. Where do like pharmaceutical companies and just companies generally doing research? Where did they come into play? Yeah, it's you know it's a real problem for pharma to, as we talked before, sort of develop a drug for such a small niche market. There are a number of mechanisms that have tried to um, incentivize them. There are orphan drug designations, which are drugs that are created for rare diseases of all sorts. But pediatric cancer does qualify as an orphan disease in the FDA's lexicon. And, and consequently, that provides certain benefits to pharmaceutical companies who are willing to pursue these drugs. There is also a program whereby they can receive a voucher if they do get a drug approved for a pediatric indication. Um, and that voucher can be used to extend the patent protections on any drug. It doesn't have to be the one that they developed. And more importantly, that voucher can actually be sold. Um, and so a pharmaceutical company that obtains one of these vouchers can then auction it to um, another big pharma company and they can use it for a blockbuster drug um, and make quite a lot of money. So these vouchers are extremely valuable and those proceeds can then be turned back into an effort to create another drug for an orphan indication. Um, and so you know, these programs are, in my mind, incredibly creative and really, I think, policymaking at its best um, to really take these market forces and turn them around and use them to incentivize the things that we as a society really need to see. Um, you know, there are pharmaceutical companies now who have recognized the 
the opportunities there and who have focused themselves on simply looking for drugs for pediatric indications to try and take advantage of these incentives. That's awesome. And I think that moves us to a good point to kind of wrap things up and, and what does this all mean? You mentioned a little bit ago the, the years of life potential uh, that you have. If, if we could find a cure or, or find therapeutics that are um, more well designated for children, um, it, it, it's just, I don't have the words, right? It's, there's, there's so much there, um, so much good that can come from this work. That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, it extends far beyond pediatric cancer, right? It's really anything pertaining to children, be it, you know, poverty mitigation, education, you know, investing in children just makes tons of sense because the leverage one gains from that investment based on the number of years that those children are going to be here and the impact that those children are going to have on our society um, is really just massive. Um, so I, you know, I think that any of us who are really primarily concerned with children recognize that, you know, be you a teacher or, you know, a, a policymaker or whomever, a parent, um, we recognize the potential in, in all of our children. Um, so the, uh, I guess our worldview would, would take um, the, the, the years um, saved um, as a real metric. Um, for how we should be expending our resources um, in, in attempting to change our society for the better. Well, Brian, I mentioned at the top, uh, it's just every time we get to talk, I feel like I learned so much. And, and thank you for, again for joining us today um, on this inaugural episode, our first episode. It's wonderful to have you and, and we really appreciate your time. It's been a real pleasure. Anytime. All right, JP, we did it. First interview done. Right. Great conversation. Dr. Rude, incredible. I mean, personal connection. He was my son's doctor, but obviously a leader in, in this space just has a wealth of knowledge and passion and drive to figure out a way to help these kids, which is what we're all trying to accomplish. What, what stood out to you? He just has such a good way of explaining things. And, and making things understandable. He does such a good job of not jumping into the technical medical jargon, unless of course he needs to. He knows his audience really well. I think that might be the best way to say it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Bev and I obviously had firsthand knowledge of that as Jack went through his treatments. Um, you know, I mean, you know, look at it from his side of things, right? He's a clinical researcher, but he's also a doctor and a very good one, And you know, can't tell you how many times he had to walk in our room and talk to us about some very difficult and technical issues and the manner by which he did it and still does it is, you know, there's not too many out there. Trust me that can do that. Yeah. And we talked with him a lot about foundations and the work that foundations do to help support his work. So I think that's a good segue to talk about and wrap things up with, with our next episode. So we're going to have uh, Nicole on to talk about LBF. She is the founder and executive director of the foundation. And I think that's going to be a, a really good conversation. Yeah, super excited about that. Um, I've known Nicole for, I'll just say over a decade, our families got connected together, actually day one of chemo. So, you know, I think in a normal world, people say, oh, we go to the beach together. We go to the beach every year with the same family. Well, you know, kind of our combined stories is that our kids 
day one had chemotherapy together. Jack was three months old. Lila was about 18 months old. And our families got connected at Children's Hospital in a, in a chemo ward. Um, and in a strange way, I'm very thankful that that happened. Obviously not thankful of what is happening to Lila and happened to Jack, but um, talk about a pillar of strength and, and, and hope and a, a real a real driver in trying to figure out um, cures and, and treatments for these kids. So excited, excited to talk to Nicole. Yeah, certainly unfortunate circumstances to bring you together, but um, in the last three years working with LBF and, and seeing the friendship and seeing the connection and it's real, it's a, a real connection you have. So very excited to talk to Nicole in our next episode and looking forward to it. JP, thank you for your time. Any final parting words here before we sign off? Oh, just, Hey, got a lot of great content out there to get educated about what this course is about. Obviously you can click to donate can be part of our 5k that's coming up soon. And we got a bunch of events to help support the course. So. Get out there, do your part. Absolutely, yes. www.lilabeanfoundation.com. It's a great place to start. Check us out on Instagram. Plenty of information out there. More information about the 5K coming up here in September. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll, we'll chat more next time. See ya. I wish there was a cure for children's cancer.